people that solve problems they've experienced or have firsthand knowledge of tend to be better at solving them. If you're a dev sitting around saying, I really want to launch a, a thing, but you don't have an immediate like, oh God, this is a pain point that I need to go after. Go attend a couple tech meetups or entrepreneurship founder meetups in your community, online. Find one of the non-technical founders that's like, oh my God, this problem is causing me to lose my hair and see if you can team up and solve that problem. Like, There's no shortage of high friction pain points. If you don't know a problem, go find somebody that's got firsthand knowledge and can help you understand that problem. Welcome to the Grant Owen Podcast, where we explore the world of entrepreneurship. Join us as we dive into the nitty-gritty of what it takes to start, grow, and scale a successful business. We're on a mission to share our experiences, failures, insights, and advice with others. Whether you're just starting out in your entrepreneurial journey, or you're looking to take your business to the next level, tune in and join the conversation about what it takes to succeed in the world of business. We going for Welcome to the Young and Driven Podcast. I am your host, Grant, and today I have Graham Barlow, and I'm super excited. Um, as always, if you're listening to this, my goal is not that you would like, subscribe, and share, and do all those big things, but that if there's one person that you think would get value from this conversation, there's one person that could learn something, there's one person that could benefit, please share it with that person. That's all I really ask of you. So in, th- in today's call, we're going to be <laughs> I know, we're gonna go all over, the, all over the place, but Graham's <laughs> successfully exited, what, four businesses? Uh, Exited three, two, three and and three. Oh man! Okay, well, goodness gracious. Okay, so so Graham has a ton of experience, especially on on the SaaS building side, the 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 IT side of things, um, building software, building apps, um, and especially uh, he's done stuff with digital currency. He do, he's done stuff with um, with gaming. So it's it's really just a, a ton of wealth of knowledge. And so my hope is that if you're listening to this and you're interested in that, or you know someone that might be interested in that, please share this with them so that they can get value. That's all I ask because we make that for that one person just so that they can benefit and learn something and grow and actually take action on what they want to do. So, Graham, thank you so much for being with me. I'm really excited to have you. Grant, thank you for having me. I've been loving seeing your content come up and the enthusiasm you've been attacking this with. So, so excited to get a chance to finally sit down and have a bit of a conversation and explore, I think, some of the similarities in our in our background and kind of the path you're heading on. Yeah. And hopefully share some experience because as yeah. you as you alluded to it has not been a straight and narrow path i think i've <laughs> bounced across industries for for a few years now i love it you know, so i'm not gonna i don't want to i hate that question of like tell me how you got started because i because that's what happens every single time but i'm thinking about people that need context into your skill set so when yeah. you when you first started your let's just say you're like your w2 journey Right, like or like not W two because I think you're in you're in uh, <laughs> you're in Canada. Your nine to five journey. Uh, what did that look like? Did you start off as a developer? Were you like I really just want to start here and and work in work in this industry? Like how did that how did that come about? What were your, what were your initial what were your initial plans? Yeah, so gonna gonna take a step back and say I have never been that structured or employable in my life. Um, <laughs> So I started the first, the first company I ever started was kind of an unofficial company slash gathering of people where we were doing the digital currency business. Um, and that was largely around kind of writing really basic bots and selling gaming currency on eBay. I started that was ten when I was 10 and we kind of sold when I was 16. Wait so after that, Wait, I... Hold up. <laughs> Back up. <laughs> so wait, wait. So you started developing stuff when you were ten. Is that what? You're yes. Saying? Yes. What I started. What, I started what language? programming at like 
really, 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 really basic stuff with like Lego Mindstorms and like weird education gaming on the Mac okay. platform like 25 plus years ago. Okay, but still, help me out. So wait, <laughs> how does one, how does a 10-year-old have access to learn this stuff? Yeah, so I, I grew up incredibly fortunate. We were um, solidly kind of middle-class household, but my mom was actually one of the first ever Apple computer distributors in Canada. And we always had Apple demo computers at our house. And so I grew up kind of from the time I can remember having access to computers, being infinitely frustrated that all of my friends had like Windows computers, which had cool games, and we had all the math counting games you could find. (laughs) But gave me a ton of foundation for just comfort on a computer and when i was 10 got very into online gaming and online communities so like diablo one and yeah. neopets online and like yeah. stuff like that and having being a 10 year old you have a lot of free time being a 10 year old you also aren't supposed to spend all of your time in the universe on video games and so that kind of led to a combination of figuring out that i could sell stuff from these games on ebay make a little bit of money and prove that like my time was being spent in a valuable way. Um, which then kind of logically went to like, well, it sucks selling everything I work hard to find. What if there's an easier way? Oh, cool. You can do like really basic auto scripts that will like record mouse clicks. And so if the games have a repeatable pattern, I can build a bot that just does that over and over again. And detection back then was terrible. So did that and then met up with other friends online that were doing similar things like well we could do this together and like share resources so yeah that was kind of entrepreneurship 101 before i really knew what the word entrepreneurship was and i really didn't know what programming was but i could hack together a bunch of stuff that kind of did what i wanted it to do so you weren't the classic like hello world kind of developer you know i was the like (laughs) i need to justify eight hours of gaming a day to my parents what do I need to mash together so that this kind of looks feasible? <laughs> How much money did you make from the ages of 10 to 16? Uh, so at the height of it, we were doing across all the games in the group that we were running with, we were doing about 50000 a month US in <laughs> revenue across like a million different PayPal accounts. Now, like looking back, back is that, on it is that legal some of the sketchiest shit. <laughs> no it was not and like we couldn't set up paypal accounts FBI, so we set em. up fake websites to kind of scale sell scam software to collect credit cards not because we wanted to steal credit cards but because we needed to put a credit card in to turn on a paypal account to move money around and nobody would give us credit cards so we did weird stuff to like make it all happen but ultimately like ended up selling everything all the currency we had and the um kind of technology we had to a chinese company that was in the space when blizzard which was one of the big companies at the yeah. time behind world of warcraft and diablo uh started prosecuting um a number of other businesses in the space <laughs> and uh went after us with a cease and desist and it was like yep okay time to leave what so when wait what was that exit like did they approach you did you approach them uh, you we, like- we had known we'd known well and the guys there for a long time because we 
a few years and we moved off of eBay because there was just too much volume to deal with. And we were just selling wholesale to the Chinese companies that were then selling it back into the North American market. So yeah. it was kind of just like, we're, we're leaving. Do you want all of our inventory, all of our accounts, all of our stuff? Yes, no. They said yes. Paid us over like 30 payments on PayPal over the course of a month and we handed everything over. It That's was crazy. Nothing more complicated than that. And we just had a bunch <laughs> of money kind of stuck on the internet because it wasn't tied to like, legitimate accounts that we owned so yeah it was we, we were super rich online for quite a while that's awesome and but none of that no <laughs> did none of that hit your bank account or did did you you're like i got a mine. little bit not really like again it was in paypal accounts that weren't in our names so tying it up to canadian bank accounts that were legitimately in our names was actually problematic and weird and then you also start to run into like questions about taxes and like none of this stuff nobody knew how the internet worked that way or how to deal with like i sold a digital bow for four hundred dollars <laughs> how should you tax that like nobody knew any of that at that time so it's hilarious it was a cool okay. time to be on it but i like to joke of like we were we were in the digital currency game yeah. doing kind of cryptocurrencies before you're literally mining you were mining yeah. before mining was cool yeah i know that's really cool <laughs> that's awesome uh wait so then so then you exit that and where, where you're 16 where are you are you like okay I, i'm gonna finish high school or are you like yeah, yeah. School? so I, I i kind of limped my way through high school um were you a good student was never i was never a good student i was i was kind of an a a solidly mediocre seventies student, okay. but I'd for a long time I'd had the philosophy that school didn't matter until grade twelve, yeah. and I'd said like, oh, at grade twelve I'll turn on a work ethic, I'll do hard, I'll I'll do good work, and I'll get what I need to. And everyone was like, that's not how life works. You can't just do that. <laughs> um, I'm a very stubborn person, so when okay. when the world tells me you can't do it that way, that is powerful motivation. So I ended up graduating with a ninety four. Um, from being like bottom rung of everything and then was like, okay, well I should be an adult. Adults go to university. Let's go to university. There should be a screening process that if your applications to programs are too all over the map, they just send you a like blanket rejection. Like no, go figure out your life. Cause like <laughs> I applied to business at one school, history at another political science at another psych. Poly at another. Sci. Why poli sci? So I went to Carleton for political science. That is the one wow. I chose. I, that's how I ended up in Ottawa. <laughs> I moved to Ottawa because Carleton gave me the best scholarship, and I was like, "Cool, where's Carleton?" Wait, but why poli? Why, why poli sci? So my theory was, I would study international relations and law, and then go work in cyber law because okay. companies like the one we had built are international, cross border. If you want to enforce laws against companies <laughs> like that, you need to understand you, you were like, relations. You were like, I broke crime. so many laws. I need to well, help people. It wasn't even that. Us. It was like, <laughs> I, in principle, broke so many ideologies <laughs> that don't even have laws right now that should. And so that was kind of the theory. That's awesome. But I got through a semester and I was like, I can't do this. That I'm, I am not going to make it. Um, so near the end of my first year, I started doing a little bit of like digital marketing consulting on the side okay. with different groups and companies I'd found in Ottawa and met. And 
by the beginning of what was supposed to be my second year, I was kind of all in on my first terrible legitimate startup idea yeah. um, that ended up helping network me and get me connected with the group that I ultimately founded Rocket All with, which was the uh, Facebook game development company that we built. Awesome. Um, so that was kind of my path. And it was always, yeah, so the, the, the nine to five thing was never. When, so never when, you say, when you say digital marketing, because that's, that's me and my space. What do you yeah. mean? What what does digital marketing mean? Well, so this, this was is like this Twitter of day one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and questionable Facebook figuring out like monetization might be a thing. Yeah. Um, I, I had been a very, very, very early member of a online community we built called D2JSP, which was essentially an online like stock exchange bartering group for digital currencies where you could move you could you could essentially convert neopoints from neopets into yep. gold and Diablo two, okay. um, but we'd grown it up to about half a million users at the time. It's like a million users now, um, and so I took a lot of what I'd seen there and what we'd done there and talked to different brands. I was like, okay, well, if you want to look at online commerce, if you want to look at building a community, you Facebook fan pages got a Twitter following. I mean, at that point, Twitter following was like, all right, I can follow 3,500 people a day, unfollow them the next day. I picked up 500 <laughs> oh, and we just run gracious. this all day, every day. <laughs> and we can get your account over 15, 20,000 followers in a month. Oh my um, goodness. Oh, so you were that guy that, you were that guy that I hate. You were that, you were the, oh, you were the organic, percent. organic like, growth. You're that organic growth agency that I can't stand. Got yes. It. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lived lived that world while while that was kind of the way to do it, right? Of like, if you want to grow a Facebook following, set up a thousand pages. Yeah, I've met I've met six people in this space in the last in the last month that they've hit me up, and that's like that's like what they do, and I'm like, come on, like what are we what see, are we even doing? See, like, I think it was I didn't know better then. I don't do it now. Like we don't yeah. prescribe to that philosophy now. I don't think it creates anything sustainable at the time. Everyone was kind of figuring it out, right? This stuff was Yeah, well, also, new, but like, also, like, vanity metrics and when you're in the start, like, and if you're at the very beginning of something, having a vanity metric that looks like that gives so much more validity. So it's like, if you, it doesn't oh, matter yeah. if they're real, but if you have 50,000 followers when the app launches, then you look so much more legitimate than anybody else. Well, and, and so many brands that were doing it for the first time just also didn't understand vanity metrics. I, I yeah. remember... It's probably 10 years ago. Um, I was on a bit of a crusade to like kill vanity metrics across the companies we were involved in. And a friend of mine had gotten a contract with a brand, uh, but their contract explicitly said like, you will get us 10,000 followers over like 60 days. We will pay you X. That's the success. This will drive whatever sales. Um, and they were really stressed out. And I was like, I'm going to show you something. We're going to use this as a teaching moment for the brand. Um, and we went and I think bought 10,000 followers for like 150 bucks. And I was like, there you go. Your contract's fulfilled, get paid, and then sit down and have a strategy session with them of like, that metric does not matter. You care about engagement. Yeah. You care about the followers. You, like, you care about the conversation and yep. you need them looking at that, not looking at this because this is meaningless and for nothing we can go buy it. Um, which was largely the like early, early days of some of the social networks. Of just yeah. It was a whole bunch of people screaming at you actually i had a hilarious conversation recently because we've been playing with ai tools for outbound sales on linkedin yeah and our ai is encountering a whole bunch of other ai and i'm like at what point 
do these platforms just become AI bots talking to each yeah. other, booking meetings for humans? <laughs> yes. And both humans show up for the call, and neither one of them has any context for how they ended up there, but yeah. the bots met and thought it was cool and yeah. booked you a coffee. Like, I think that's a crazy, interesting world. Yeah. But a problem for the platforms that are trying to say they have, like, legitimate user bases. Yeah. What, uh, so what led to that? What led to you exiting that business? Uh, so the game development company, Rocket Owl, we built it at the height of kind of the Zynga Farmville insanity. And fortunately, I think hit on a pretty cool niche where we looked at kind of social impact gaming mm-hmm. and partnered with a lot of nonprofits around the world on how you could channel player activity and player enthusiasm in a green themed game to drive real world impact so we raised a ton of money for um wildlife preservation both with canada wildlife and world wildlife foundation federation um also partnered with a company to do a big reforestation campaign um grew the game to over a million users unfortunately by the time we kind of hit the peak user base we really had not figured out the right balance for kind of monetization and growth. And Mm. so ultimately ended up selling the underlying technology to another investment group here in Ottawa called Keshit Technologies. Um, And as part of that, they leveraged the technology in a number of their portfolio companies. And I came on to head up an early stage venture fund that they had where we invested in early stage SaaS companies as well as did kind of marketing sales and marketing acceleration work and okay, so this was that's your first job. That yeah. was your first. That was your first. Like I'm working for somebody else's job. Yeah, and and kind of because I was CEO for the fund, yeah. and ended up building a team there. I had a partner in it, but that was yeah. that was the first job per se, and that was after we'd done kind of four and a half years at Rocket Owl. Yeah. Okay. What a I want to. I'm so curious about your perspective on the gaming industry. <laughs> Because I mean, so I'm I'm guessing I'm hoping you're still an avid gamer, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I I took two weeks off a few years ago when World of Warcraft Classic launched and played with a bunch of friends that I played 15 years <laughs> ago, it. and That's we awesome. got to be. I watched some streams. I watched some streams of that. That was pretty fun. I was never a, a was, World of Warcraft guy, hilarious. but that's really fun. <laughs> That's probably uh, why you're you're as productive as you are right now. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean I'm productive. I, if anything, if anything, you, you found a way to monetize it. So that's the funniest part. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Like, because game development is so interesting to me. There's so few games, especially with most games doing the one-time purchase season pass kind of perspective, where they're always it's always in beta mode. They're always updating. Um, yeah. What do you think the value is in terms of like if you're trying to build an app or you're trying to build a game, is that just like a, a short-term mindset? Because like the, I can count the number of games in my hand that are like, yep, they've built something that's actually going to last at least a decade. Uh, gaming, gaming is such a cool but challenging space. And like I live this because like we raised, we raised a bunch of money in the game space from angels and from venture and from a business perspective when you go to kind of present your like what problem do we solve um the problem you're solving in gaming is boredom right like it is it is yeah. genuinely just like you're trying to create something just entertaining for people yeah. for entertainment and what's challenging is there are so many games published every single day 
to varying degrees of quality. Yeah. That the the range, quality, and caliber of games are so vast between what you would see like an indie release on Steam or yep. even an indie release on mobile to half a billion dollar game development budgets for the massive titles that get released on PC. And you're all competing for the same minute of time yeah. in somebody's schedule with the same value prop. And so yeah. I think outside of the massive studios and the massive brands trying to do a game where you have 10 years of staying power does not make sense. Like you're, you're talking about trying to attack a problem where you're going to be multi console or technology generational, multi platform generational. It is, it is so hard. The big studios haven't even figured out, like you can probably list top 10, maybe 15 games that have survived that long. Yeah. I think there's, there is a lot of opportunity in gaming, but it is, there is not really, from my perspective, an exact science behind what makes one title hyper successful versus another. For every incredible indie game that takes off and grows cult following and kills it, there's probably a thousand other equally good indie titles that just didn't get picked up by the right person or discovered at the right time. And so it's challenging. What's funny is in my current my current world like iversoft where we are the bulk of our business is custom software development uh we actually started out in the game space the first mm. titles that were ever launched under I- iversoft still exist to this day and we still maintain them to this day are three solitaire titles on ios we were one of the first mm. companies in the world to publish solitaire on ios and because we were first and for pretty much no other reason because we were first with reasonably high quality offerings they are still ranked among some of the top titles in the card game space today Mm. and still generate kind of seven figures of revenue on an annual basis and but that's from monetizing two billion ad impressions every year yeah um, all through banner ads and interstitials that's what i'm saying so like all is because like i'm guessing those are like the in-app purchase and then in addition to that just tons of advertising that is all ads there is, yeah. we, I think we make 50 bucks a month on in-app purchases. We have a like, really? buy no ads option, <laughs> and I think it's maybe 50 bucks. And all of the rest of the revenue is ad-driven, Yeah, um, which honestly was one of the things I met, I missed on Rocket All when we did Green Spaces. We focused entirely on the in-app purchase side of things. And I think you have to have a split approach between ads for for kind of... Web and, and mobile games. I think the, the split between ads and in-app purchase is very strong unless you've got a phenomenal game loop that's going to drive kind of that constant recurring purchase. That's why you see the season pass stuff. But like ads ads kind of fill that buffer and can do really well if you have really long session length and really high engagement. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's, a, okay. it's a pretty crazy space. What a, what What do you think about... This is such a broad question. It sounds like a dumb question for someone that doesn't have context. <laughs> there are no case. dumb questions. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to know your thoughts on like the Unreal Engine um, because that's something that a lot of people are really excited about and utilizing that to build games. Yeah, um, I, I think it's incredible. Like I think tools like Unreal and Unity are absolutely amazing and they have unlocked the ability for small teams to make incredible content. Hmm. Unfortunately, it's also kind of like it's set the bar 
that then large teams do that much more with it. So as much as the the baseline of what kind of small teams can do, the the target for what large teams are capable of doing moves equally quickly. But I think like technologies like that are phenomenal. Where we've struggled um, is sometimes trying to make the game engines do non-gaming things. Sometimes people want to use them for apps. Like, oh, well, like Unity does this or... Um, and in those instances, I think they add a ton of overhead to an app that could be a lot cleaner, faster, simpler without it. Yeah. But for for game development itself, it's it's incredible, and I love the approach Unreal has taken for for where they've gone with it, almost more so than the the direction we've seen um, Unity move. Love it, love it. Uh, so for you, are you someone that's like I've always wanted to just build games? Like that's just something like you're like I have an idea for a game. I'm always just going to go in and, and like even that was one, me. That was you. <laughs> it was me. And then I spent five years in the games industry and was like, and oh, like, <laughs> oh, I want to play games. Yeah, I, I appreciate <laughs> playing games. I don't. I don't know that I would ever do another games company. Um, it was a humbling experience seeing yeah. that side of it. It's, it's an incredible industry. It's a fun space. I have so many amazing friends that are, are successful there, but like it is such a tough ecosystem to be in. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's given me a lot of, a lot of appreciation and respect for the people that, that make it happen. And that much more respect for when like playing incredible games when they come out is just, is cool. What so do you do you have uh, appreciation for someone like Donald Mustard who like just stepped down because he I think he was the uh, the Epic Games uh, CCO or whatever and he just like retired. Do you have like appreciation for those people <laughs> that are like they're like they were heading up those games and then they're like okay I'm just kind of done I just want to <laughs> I just want to enjoy say, life for a little bit. We've seen it we've seen it also with like most of the senior leadership at Blizzard over the years of like yeah. they've they've built incredible things incredible communities and then kind of stepped back and I think we're coming up on what is hopefully a new era in the game space where you're going to see new companies coming up and new franchises launched yeah. um I think it it has a bit of the same challenge that the movie industry has where it has become so expensive to build high-end games nobody really wants to take a crazy bet on a new franchise it's like well yeah. we could if we're going to spend 20 50 100 million dollars on a game we can do something new or we can do another marvel one or it's like yeah oh, we do the next call of Duty. <laughs> yeah. we do the next thing it's like well yeah from a business perspective it, it is tough to do that and new franchises are hard to launch um being in the indie space of it what are your thoughts on like some of the more, uh, the more mainstream games? Do you like? I just can't stand playing them. I, I, or like, are you? Do you have like an appreciation for kind of like more of the underground stuff? Uh, I would like to say I do. Uh, reality is, I have especially now having a daughter, and I have such a finite amount of time yeah. to appreciate and get into games. I kind of just exist in my Blizzard bubble for what I actually play <laughs> because, like, I I play a lot of Diablo Two Resurrected because it's like Diablo Two is the game that like taught me pretty much everything about the yep. internet from online yeah. communities to trading. <laughs> I mean, this will sound funny. When I was this this would have been like when we were doing snow currency stuff, but like I I was like a middleman distributor for a duplication network in Montreal 
where I had this friend that I had met that every now and then would give me an account full of high runes and I got 30% of anything I could sell them for. And I would just go dump them on communities and forums and in trade games and get my commission on a like <laughs> weekly basis. And like literally learned how to do that and how to negotiate and all of that from Diablo 2. And then when World of Warcraft came around and like the auction house was out and everyone was like, oh, you can go kill things for hours on end and make five gold an hour or whatever it was at the time. I was like, or I can watch the auction house and just really pay attention and somebody underprices something, buy it, flip it, make money. And that's how ultimately kind of gaming arbitrage money. Gaming yeah. arbitrage. That's crazy. To oh, me. and that, I've, I've made a ton of money doing that. You'd still make money, a ton of money in, in games today. And it's what I laugh a little bit about is like when people are like, oh, you never did business school. It's like true, but I've also spent my entire life manipulating economies online. Yeah. yeah. And it's the exact same in the real world. It yeah. really isn't that different. And so the education you can get from online games and community driven games is incredible. Um, and I think That's often really cool. gets overlooked or uh, undervalued. What do you think of the streaming community? That, that was something that came up probably, I mean, obviously became bigger the last five years, but the, uh, Justin, <laughs> Justin TV. I say I've followed it since the Justin TV days. Yeah. And like, I mean, I think I, I watched I Justine's first live stream of like her life back <laughs> whenever she was doing that as like a thing. I don't even remember if that was Justin TV or if she was doing it on or something, but, yeah. um, I love it. Like, I, I think there are toxic, challenging things inside of it, but I also think that community is one of the most powerful, incredible opportunities we've ever seen. Um, it is creating jobs for people without the need for large agencies or distribution platforms or huge upfront cost. It's creating incredible opportunities creating incredible content for people yeah. um on both sides good and bad uh but as a whole i think it's a hugely net positive thing and i'm pretty excited to try and be involved in it it's i always joke that if i ever get kind of completely bored of doing <laughs> building companies and that i'm just going to become a full-time streamer and that's awesome do, do you stream right now games all day do you no, stream right now i no. we joked about doing it a little bit when we were doing our kind of wow classic thing but yeah honestly i don't know that i've got the um multitasking capability to be entertaining <laughs> and not terrible and, yeah i yeah. can be one or the other <laughs> um and at least so far for playing i've opted for the like slightly not terrible player versus <laughs> not entertaining streamer I love um, it. That's awesome. Well, so wait. So tell me, who is your uh, who's your longest sub? So tell me, like, who have been, who have you been subbed to the longest? Ooh, uh, Philip DeFranco. I have no idea who that is. Who is that? So he's a YouTuber, he not a YouTuber? not a streamer. Okay. Um, I think he's done live streaming now. He does news shows. Okay. Um. And God, I think I've like I have been subscribed to his content since he had like no followers yeah um and have one of the like first signed posters he put out <laughs> nice. eons ago with like the monkey and uh, nice. whatever um and that's probably the longest standing 
on that or I Justine. Okay. Because she was all about I like Apple content back when like the whole world that said Apple wasn't cool and I'd I'd come up in an Apple. So wait, and I was well, like, here's the deal, man. You are you definitely are different because you're someone from the, in the developing space <laughs> that says Apple is the best. You yep. there's you are few and far between because yes. everybody in the creative space, you cannot be a creative and not have Apple. Like you just can't. You can't be a creative. You can't do video editing. You can't do any of that stuff. Like sure, Premiere works on it, but let's just be real. You can't. You can't do it. You have to yeah. have. You have to have Apple. And gamers are not pro Mac. Nope. In general, well, gamers gamers are all PC. I have a PC for gaming. Yeah. Because and especially the current generation of new Apple hardware with, the, with Apple hardware with the Apple Silicon, which I love, is atrocious for gaming. <laughs> It's yeah. just awful. You can't even do even with camp, like which even with like the M5 and everything like that. Even with all that stuff, it's just not not even good. But most games aren't compatible with it, and there's no good way yeah. to run Windows. Right? Yeah. There's there's a lot of games that just aren't Diablo Four does not run on yeah Mac at all, and there's yeah. no and so you have to get an emulator way just, to yeah. emulate it anymore because it used to be Boot Camp. You could boot it into Windows, and it kind of acted like a Windows machine. Without the Intel chips now. You can't do boot camp, so you're having to do some kind of parallels thing, which is never a great gaming experience. I'm, I'm certain their marketing says it can be done. Whatever, I've got it. Um, but yeah, so but if you're in the mobile space at all, you have to be on iOS. Yeah, and iOS is you have to have Apple hardware if you build it, and so. And I recommend anyone that's getting into the development space should be developing on mobile. Mobile is the top platform on the planet for content consumption for daily use whether you're even if you're not talking kind of native apps if you're talking about mobile web content like it's it's where the world interfaces with content and you have to be there um they've got phenomenal hardware it's expensive but what we've found and what i love is it would be cheaper for us to buy a windows laptop for a developer but if we buy an Apple laptop, use it for three years, and then sell it, yeah. we get 70% of what we paid for it back and then buy a new one. Yeah. Um, I We don't retain anything close to that value on the Windows laptops we buy. So yeah. when you look at it over kind of lifespan and kind of cost recovery, it's there's there's really no comparison. I, I love their hardware. They've lost their way a few times over the years, but for the most part, I've been I've been a big, big fan of Apple since... I understood what it was. Love you it. got made fun of it about it <laughs> at school. And now look who's talking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Come on. Oh, well, so here, here's, I'm going to, I want to, I want to talk about the outsourced development team, like the, the way you've run that business. I really have a lot of, I'm really curious about it. But first, before we go into that, I want to get your overall, uh, there's not many people that are actively gaming enjoy gaming or have been in the gaming space that uh, have the insights that you have on the community and whether gaming is valuable. I think that's, it's almost like a, a cultural, there's almost like cultural hate towards someone who's a gamer. <laughs> it's like, if you tell me like anytime I was like, I talk to people like even friends or friends of friends or whatever, I would be at something and like someone mentions like Twitch and I'm like, yeah, I spent some time watching Twitch and I was, you know, I had my, people I've been sub to for a few years, that kind of stuff. But like, yep. and as soon as they say that, you're like, you, who's, who's you, your longest sub? Uh, Nick Merckx. Nick Merckx. He's nice. a, he's a, he's, I've, I've been sub to him since 
like I, I got into Twitch and everything like that in the Fortnite days. I'm I'm younger, so it's like I love it. Fortnite was where Fortnite was where I kind of came in. But I, I Fortnite started is like, how I realized I'm in the old generation of gaming yeah. when you had to shoot and build, and I was just like, yeah, no. <laughs> well, now you don't. No. Now you don't. That's One the best or the part. Other. That's the best part. Now you don't. Now they have like a no the no building mode, and so I play like probably once every few weeks with my friends, and I'm awful. That's awesome. But but it's I've kept up with the same it's people fun. I played with like ten years ago, so it's pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I. I, as soon as I mentioned people, I don't actively watch streams anymore. It's just not a part of my, like, I, again, you have kids, busy life happens. You try to build a yep. business, busy life happens. But as soon as I mentioned it, people hate. People are like, you pay to watch other people play video games. Or like you, like video games are such a waste of time. Or just like anything. And even uh, I've talked to parents that are saying, Grant, you know, like uh, my kid, my son plays video games all night long and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to relate yeah. to him. I don't know how to help him. I don't know if it's a good thing. I think it's a bad thing. Talk to me about it. So I, yeah. I have people that have asked me those questions. I want to know your thoughts. Do you think the it. gaming as a community, the gaming community as a whole, is a productive thing, is a positive thing, or a negative thing? I don't think it's either. Uh, and I think it, it depends on what you do with it. Like I think there can be unbelievably negative destructive behavior that comes out of gaming i i think we see some of the worst of the worst when you look at how trolling happens and some of the slurs and negativity that happens in a lot of the gaming communities yeah. i also think you can see some of the best of kind of people and collaboration and teamwork happen in gaming that is fundamentally not possible anywhere else when people ask us a lot about our philosophy at iversoft for remote work and how do you build leadership and how do you train people in a remote setting you can't possibly develop junior talent my response to that is always somewhere along the lines of like have you watched kids learn how to play online have you yeah. watched them collaborate on teams like i've done team-based gaming stuff my entire life and overcome real-time complex challenges far more sophisticated than anything you're going to do in a one hour meeting or session at work yeah and accomplished it with a group of people we've never met yeah um it is possible it comes down to motivation i think when it comes to kids and gaming there's a lot of stuff looking back at that i was exposed to on the internet that was probably questionable at the same time <laughs> it provided the entire foundation for my education around business development around team building like I was never the best player in my group, but I was always the player on our team that could get people to fill spots that we needed that were good, that had unlimited resources whenever we needed to buy whatever or trade for whatever or get access to something. Mm -hmm. And those skills are transferable. So I'd say to parents that are worried about their kids gaming, understand what they're doing and what they're playing. Understand what skills might be there and potentially help them recognize that. Like those that are playing Minecraft, like Minecraft is an incredible game for resource management and dexterity and community. Um, there's so much that can be taken there. I realize I'm massively behind the times and like, I don't know enough about Roblox and it, I don't know anything yet. At yeah. this point, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, anything yeah, I think you're about two years away from that. Is going to be your life, and you're going to have to scale the company to keep up with the cost. <laughs> yeah. um, 
I've heard from parents that it's it's nuts, but like (laughs) whatever it is, like if gaming is the vehicle for engagement, gaming can be one of the most powerful educational platforms ever because it is literally like a dopamine reward drip into your brain for how it's structured. And as long as you can look at what skills you're taking away from it and what games you're playing and how those games work, um, I think it can be incredibly powerful. I laugh a little bit like the best man at our wedding is a friend I met playing World of Warcraft at this point 20 plus years ago and we have met in person in real life I think three as at the time of our wedding three times and, wow. and that was just like the third time getting together was them wow. flying up for a wedding <laughs> um but I that's not uncommon that's not time. uncommon for my my gen, my age group that's not an uncommon yeah thing. well but I tell people that in the generation like a generation ahead yeah. of me and it blows their mind, like yeah. absolutely blows their mind. But for me, it's kind of the foundation of like, can a remote company work? It's like, hell yeah, it can. Like you yeah. can build deeper, stronger relationships with people online or equally deep as you can in person. I don't know mm-hmm. that one, I don't think one is better than the other. I think in person potentially facilitates relationships being built faster. Yeah. Um, but I don't think online is a barrier to building those relationships. Um and I think gaming can be an incredible outlet um, for activity. But yeah, yeah, it, it is definitely a controversial topic yeah. across the board. Well, it, is, it is my go-to for just kind of de-stress and decompress. But yeah, um, well, I want to hit yeah. on two things there. You said you talked about how it's a dopamine hit. So it, there's an, there's an element of gaming that is addictive. Yes, like absolutely. super addictive, and there's there's a negative connotation that comes with that level of addiction, right? Like, especially for people that are exposed at a young age. What do you think about parents that like? Do you think parents should game with their kids? Like, yeah, do you think absolutely. do you think do you think that you're going to game with your daughter when she's when she grows up? Assuming she'll uh, entertain it, absolutely. That's yeah. There's our my wife and I spend a lot of time gaming together. It's we've gone to BlizzCon together. We do a lot of. Um, a lot of online stuff together. And I think it's an incredible way to spend time. I've met a lot of kind of parents and kids that play together, Um, especially in an online gaming context when she's young. I think it's incredibly powerful for helping educate her on how to handle that world. Uh, Where I I disagree is potentially the parents that opt out of the digital ecosystem for their kids and are just like, no devices, no online, no social prior to X age it's like the reality is she's growing up in that world like everything is digital so I can either shield her from that completely and she's going to have one hell of a learning curve when she dives into it herself when she's older or we can try and come up with her through it and give her the tools to handle it to help her understand how to deal with negativity online help her how to understand how to kind of make friends online safely and connect with people and I think there's yeah, it's it's something I'm excited to do, but love. Got a little That's bit of awesome. time. She's 18 months, so yeah. we're, we're working, <laughs> working on it. Well, I just want to, and for anybody listening to this, this is coming from the context of someone that has built a company, multiple companies that are seven figure companies, and then a company that's currently doing what 10 million in ARR. Something just like shy that. of 10 million in annual revenue at Iversoft right now. That's cr- so. Like this is this is not coming from some like I feel like that's I need people like you to speak <laughs> to this because the thing that people don't understand is that there are, there are people like you that exist (laughs) that like aren't just profiting from the gaming community, but also like have an appreciation for it, have a way that they've been able to build stuff based on it and, and are 
productive people to society <laughs> because in large part using the game tuned into it but um toby the ceo at shopify has done a number of twitch yeah. streams doing yeah. live q a gaming and chatting and yep. posted it. like there's there's there is a community of productive helpful gamers yeah. out there that are building cool things yeah um and the stigma is breaking but it's it's yeah. still there well, I mean, it also, it stems over into the creative space. I think a big person in my sphere is, not my sphere, but like that I pay fairly close attention to is Jack Conte, who's the CEO of Patreon. But okay. fundamentally, yeah. he's a, fundamentally, he's been a creative. And he was like, I did the starving artist thing for a long time. That's why I built this community. And now I'm trying to defeat the apps <laughs> by building, like allowing a context for you to connect with people that you want to connect with rather than an algorithm yeah. saying what is worth connecting with. So I, I don't know, like that... Regardless, the concept of community building online, whether in creative or whether in gaming or what, in whatever context, there's a there's a, a group of people that are obviously going to be the worst side of it and obviously going to be the best side of it. And there's so much in between. But yeah. I would just argue that that the way that friendships are built in my generation and especially the generation after me are mostly going to be online. It's not oh, going to yeah. be the same thing as like we we're friends with everybody in the neighborhood, all the neighborhood kids. Like most parents are like, they're scared to let their kids play with the neighborhood kids. So it's like, so most of those, so most, what most of are going to find people online. online. Yeah, exactly. Right? You're just like, instead of isolation, there's so many people that you probably connect with online that, that oh, you'll yeah. never meet or meet maybe three times and you'll have very close relationships with. And I love that. Um, that's really cool. So let's move to, I want to learn about Iversoft, what you've built. I want to understand first off, before I ask ignorant questions, I want to know like, what it is, because from my perspective, it sounds like you're essentially an outsourced development team. Uh, yeah. Outsourced in the sense that like people bring you on to be their own in-house team when they can't necessarily afford or don't have the... like. Functionally, you become a CTO in their business as an agency. Is that accurate? Kind of. Um, and so I would definitely say that's where Iversoft started. So Iversoft at this point is 12 years old. I joined when we were a team of seven um, and we're about 50 today. Love it. Um, we started out very much in that ecosystem of kind of, we are your project based, give us a product, we'll go build it yeah. um, for a fixed fee. Where we've moved to in the last three years is much more along the lines of kind of technical team augmentation and team support. So in a lot of cases, we're coming in and we're reporting to an in-house CTO who potentially needs specialized expertise in mobile or augmented reality or streaming, and they yeah. don't have the capability to bring that talent in-house, or they're not looking to bring that talent in-house for a long period of time. Yeah. So they'll bring us on for 6, 12, 18 months, and we spin up a team that includes the development, product management, project management, yeah. um, and QA and kind of provide full service development work for them with completely Canadian talent. Now, yeah, Can the Canadian, Canadian talent. Yeah, 100% Canadian. So 100% of our staff are all in Canada. Um, wow. We don't do any overseas work. We don't do any. Wow. Well, um, I want to ask about. I want to ask about that. <laughs> so first off, yeah. why? Why? Because there's uh, people that are talented. But tell me why. There are. There are. Um, from few reasons. So a number of our projects require degrees of security clearance that are only available to Canadian citizens. 
Yep. Um, so that's kind of one basic technical reason. Uh, another is we've worked with a number of overseas outsource firms and honestly, as much as we've seen kind of a one third cost savings, um, it's taken three times as long. And when we look at the net impact for the businesses we work with, it's like, yeah, you can pay more per on per hour or per retainer basis, but we're going to move that much faster for a team that has the same context, the same understanding, the same educational kind of background and just moves that much faster. There are yeah. incredible overseas teams. They are very hard to find and very hard to manage yeah. without people kind of boots on ground. And Gotcha. Our experience to date has been we can outperform that and outdeliver that with Canadian talent. And when we sell into the US, we're still at a pretty significant cost savings versus kind of local US talent. Because dollar for dollar, it's kind of similar salaries, but you save 30% on the exchange rate. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Okay. So what I've I've done that. I've done I worked as a project manager. In cool. a small DevOps team for four okay. years, three, four years. Um, that was a consulting kind of agency, similar model. I think we worked specifically very small, tiny scale, but we worked with like MLMs and we built their front okay. office site and their back office site. Um, we worked with some people in the, the finance space. Uh, we worked with some people in the crypto space. Um, nice. And then we worked with, yeah, I, I, I feel like our main client was probably in the student loan refinancing space and then the... Yeah, probably the just e-commerce, like online sales space where they had some kind of front front end, back end, like fr- yeah. uh, some affiliate program kind of MLM push. Uh, I hated it. I, and I, when I say I hated it, yeah. I, I, I loved it. It was thrilling. I enjoyed the process. I was probably, I was mostly doing a lot of the communication directly with the, the CTO of whatever other company we were working for, we were outsourced to. Yep. Um, and then, you know, creating, creating razor stories and, and actually executing it with our developers. And usually our, our developers were freelance, uh, full-time or they were like high level at like Comcast or something like that, or like BlackRock and, and this was just their side gig. So we'd pay them a premium, but they were insanely accomplished individuals that yeah. so it wasn't like, it was our own in-house team, but it was, uh, yeah. we got, we had access to the best of the best. That being said, the demands of a a company that it puts full-time expectations on you when you're being paid as a, almost like a contracted out agency and have in-house almost expectations for that. Like what yes. is what is your relationship with those companies been like and how do you manage that client experience where you can over-deliver uh, while still you know, being able to fulfill multiple clients at the same time and dedicate that's the limited number of resources. (laughs) Yeah. So, and like, honestly, that's why we flipped the business model a few years ago, because what you're describing was a grind that was killing us and is very challenging to sustain. When we went to more of the team augmentation model, um, we essentially do engagements at 50% of a resource or 100% of a resource. So at most people are working on two projects and half their time goes to one, half the time goes to the other. Most of our engagements, it's full-time resources and it's like three, four or five people on a project and they're dedicated to that, that project. That's, that is what they do. Um, from a project management perspective, our project managers might have three or four, 
that they're yeah. involved with, but because they're dealing with full-time resources that are working for the client 30 to 40 hours a week, um, it's a lot less chaotic. And yeah. it, because it's a retainer model for the team and it starts at six months, our engagements typically start at about 25000 a month, so you're kind of 150000 minimum to start. You're dealing with a little bit more sophisticated clientele, you're time-based, and so it's they, less they get about access to trying to squeeze hours? every... Pardon? They have access to, like, a pool of hours, essentially? No, they have that resource full-time. So it's like, if okay. you if you get... If you're on for one technical unit, you're getting that developer full-time. Yeah. No one else has their time. We reserve a little bit of their time for training and kind of internal meetings. Otherwise, yeah, that dev is on that project, that, um, and they have a kind of percentage of quality assurance time to do the QA work and yeah. project manager to make sure they're going the right direction. If it's a project that needs product management, they've got kind of the appropriate amount of product time to support that. But otherwise it's not kind of tracking hours. It's like, this is a full-time resource for you. We're going to help make sure they're delivering well for you. We're going to make sure we have the best possible talent for you. Um, but What's nice is it flips the conversation from our project managers in our old model used to be hyper focused on like profitability and like get it done as fast as possible and like track every minute that goes anywhere versus when it's full time. It's like, no, like make the best decisions for the product, make the best decisions for the client. We want the long term relationship. We want this to be sustainable for everyone. And a bit of our pitch to a lot of our clients that are potentially less technical is we can hire and attract better technical talent than Mm. you could hire in house because you don't have an ecosystem that facilitates that. We have 50 people they can draw on for mentorship and career progression and everything like that. Plus we do all the perks that might not be feasible at your organization. We have the four day compressed work week and flexible schedules. We've got a whole learning and development ecosystem and so we can attract talent that you might not be able to if you're setting yeah, up a dev team for the first time. And that's the value prop versus, yeah, we're going to turn stuff around for you in four hours. And, or, and even so, yeah. even so, like on top of that, you're saying like you, the people that are on your team are probably higher skill level. And then the training and resources they're going to have to be able to execute on what the person's trying to do, it's going to be so much better because yeah. effectively, like I'm guessing a big pain point for some people that are like, let me start a development team. It's like, okay, I'll hire a developer. And it's like, I'm, if I don't know, if I'm a CTO and I know very little, or maybe I was a developer myself, like there's just the scope of what I'm going to be able to accomplish oh, yeah. to, to do what I want to do on that price point is, is crazy. So I, I, it sounds like you're in that unique model where it's like almost every single business that does anything online will need some form of what you're talking about for a specific period of time. What do you think yeah. about for like LTV of clients? How how do you, I, I guess it's easy to have like a two in one out mentality, right? Where it's like, okay, we'll always be offboarding and onboarding simultaneously. But how do you expand to relationships and partnerships for years and years when you, like especially if you don't own the proprietary software? It's one thing if it's like they're paying you yeah. to to customize a software that you have an app that you have that they want to utilize and then you're creating additional things and packages on top of it. They're custom to them. That's one thing versus like they're just accessing your hours. They're just accessing your, your manpower. We retain long-term clients in LTV 
and increase LTV by having talent and process and structure that is so valuable they don't want to get rid of it. And mm. the vast majority of our business is team expansion and renewal. Um, like we don't have a huge portfolio of clients right now. I think we deal with probably 15 clients a year. Awesome. Um, and 70% of them are existing clients that are expanding their teams. And we bring on some new clients every year. Um, would love to bring on more, but we're not kind of going crazy trying to chase the wrong fit. We're very, we're very much looking for opportunities where it is a partnership where there's a lot of mutual respect and, we're looking for that long-term thing. And most of our clients are ones that started out with maybe one dev or half a resource yeah. and are now teams of four or five. And yeah. we have all of the historical tech knowledge. We have all the documentation we have, we know their systems in and out where we've delivered on time over and over again for them. Um, and so when they're looking at expanding and growing, it's a lot easier to just kind of tap our team and say, yeah, we want to add one or two more devs than to try and bring all of that in house and replicate it. Yeah. Um, especially if they're kind of really good at what they do. What do you think about teams? I was a part of a company where they decided we're going to, we're going to acquire this software and we're going to build out a team in house. And there was pains. <laughs> there's pains that I'm sure they're still going through, but like there's just back, there's back end pains from that transition, especially like we were, it was for in our, in our case, it was like a, a POS. So it was like, it was yep. the main function we used for the business and it went from like, okay, we're able to access a high, it's, it's a, it's a six figure contract because we're accessing so many resources and it's, and we still own the tool, but we still need all that assistance to being like, okay, now we have to triple our own team just for almost like the ego aspect of like, we have it in house. We, yeah. just because we want to uh, save on costs in the next decade. What are your thoughts on that in companies that kind of approach things that way? Um, it's interesting. I, I had a really good conversation with, about this with Leanne, um, on her podcast last week about, it really depends on the technical culture in the company. If you have a company that has a large, happy development ecosystem where you guys are productive and things are going well, bringing it in house is not a terrible idea. Yeah. If you don't. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, which to be honest, there's is twelve most, years is of most. learning. Yeah, yeah, well, and that's a lot of what comes with Microsoft. Is like there's twelve years of learning how to create this ecosystem and how to function it well and how to get the right talent in the right roles and keep them motivated and keep them trained and keep them kind of moving forward. That is an unbelievably steep learning curve for non-technical organizations. Um, what's funny is our biggest clients are in some cases the most tech-savvy of our portfolio, but they're tech-savvy enough to be aware that they have really good back-end and web stack people and yeah. have not been able to properly build an Android or an iOS team. And so they look at yeah. us and they're just like, mobile is yours? Here's yeah. how you interface with our scrums. Here's how you interface with our teams. Bring the people that make sense. You guys vet yeah. them. You guys deal with that. Um, and it's the same thing. Like we've, We don't work in WordPress. We have yeah. tried a hundred different times to figure out how to do WordPress well. And the reality is we just don't have any senior leadership that are like w extreme WordPress advocate champions yeah. that know how to find that magic skill set that makes WordPress sing in whatever magical ways you want it to be. And so it's a little bit of like that self-reflection. Like we're not going to try and be that. We're not, we're not saying we do every language. We know what we do really well and we'll build teams around that and respect the places that we we don't have right now and that's and yeah. that's okay 
Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask for this is my hot topic then. I want to get your feedback on it. What are your yeah. thoughts on no code SaaS? Ooh, ooh, interesting. Um, if you can make it work, do it. Uh, like I think there's so many good no code solutions out there for. I'm gonna say sixty percent of the product depth you need. If you can launch a company with no code solutions absolutely do it um the reality that we've seen is a lot of companies get their start that way they'll build their mvp that way and by the time they're achieving scale or moving into enterprise integration and clients you have to build your own stack and you need to be able to do the custom work and yeah i think that's awesome that's the right time to invest more in the development that's the right time to go down it Um, yeah we we continue to experiment with no code tools and I think they're great for a lot of problems and especially in kind of smaller organizations and smaller budgets, find a way to make it work, make it happen. Um, and then you'll hit a point, I think at, at scale where you need to do more of your own development work. And yeah, when you hit that, give us a call. Yeah. Love it. Okay. And do you think, cause it's, it's something that's, it's almost, uh, I I've heard both sides of the argument where it's like, there's some people that hate it. There's developers that almost look down on it. Right. Because it's like, Oh yeah. You have it's, a twenty-year-old kid that's like you have a, you have a twenty-year-old kid that's like I built this incredible tool and I don't know how to code and I'm a now a SaaS founder and I can exit companies as a SaaS founder. And it's like sweet, you've you're good at integrations, yeah. uh, and then I I almost I, I talk to developers and they almost like they're like almost embarrassed because they're like first off there's a there's people that are younger and dumber than me that are doing things more impressively than me or making more money doing the thing that I'm doing, which is building software. Um, I, I think there's going to become a point, I'm guessing later on this year, where every developer is going to come across the topic and be like, shoot, I got to try something. Uh, what would you recommend for someone that does have the knowledge that now understands that other people have those resources. So now it's going to be a completely saturated market with everyone trying to launch something. And it's essentially going to be like whoever has the best marketing is, the, is going to win. Um, what do you think about a developer that is like, okay, I really want to build something that's actually valuable. And I, I'm realizing I might not have to spend two years locked up in my room doing this yeah. back end and front end. And now I can roll, roll out an MVP pretty quickly. Um, what would you recommend to someone like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the, for me, and I'll, I'll look at this from kind of the lens that we look at kind of investing from, um, people that solve problems they've experienced or have firsthand knowledge of tend to be better at solving them. So yeah, if you're a dev sitting around saying, Hey, I really, I really want to launch a, a thing, but you don't have an immediate, like, Oh God, this is a pain point that I need to go after. Go attend a couple tech meetups or entrepreneurship founder meetups in your community, online, wherever. And find one of the non-technical founders. That's like, Oh my God, this problem is causing me to lose my hair. And scream into the void and see if you can team up and solve that problem. Like there's no shortage of high friction pain points in B2B in enterprise in agency, whatever, like go find one of those problems and work on the solution. If you don't know a problem, go find somebody that's got firsthand knowledge and can help you understand that problem. Yeah. Um, where I think some founders or even some devs 
struggle is they just go to do, they go to look for a problem without necessarily talking to the people that are experiencing it or understanding what the actual workflow solution is. And so they build something that kind of technically checks the box as, yeah. yes, this solves it. Yeah. But then you put it in the hands of the people that kind of live that problem day to day. And they're like, yeah, this is actually yeah. better. This is, yep. this is, yes, this is different. Yeah. But it's not better be, for these reasons. And that's where I think you really need that kind of domain suffering part yeah. to to really nail it, especially if you're trying to uh, launch SaaS. Like, can can I add to this? Yeah. Actually, I have, an, I have a thought. So I want to get your feedback on this. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at one of my clients. And uh, he was established in the industry, was an educator in the industry um, of his, whatever their niche was. And so they, they build up a following. They build up a, a, a following that appreciated their education and they found a tool and partnered with the developer of that tool. So there was okay. someone that was building a cool. tool that was building, building an app and they partnered with it and immediately grew to probably, I would guess their valuation somewhere around 20, 30 million. Um, Amazing. Just because they're there, it's a, it's a cheaper tool, but it's a B to it's a B to B, but it's really a B to C and they market it as such. But essentially his approach to it was like, Hey, I can just, I've got users. Yep. I'm immersed in the market. I'm immersed in the, with the people and I have users that I can immediately add to your tool. So as soon as like, whether you use me as an affiliate or you give me equity, I can immediately add a ton of users. And so he was, and he, so he was like, he actually was telling me, he was like, I'm actually building another tool. Not because I know like with it, we're, we're, we're as a group are building a second tool because how this one works. I know that I can get 5,000 people into a beta and that will immediately make the like will immediately make it a five, a million dollar SaaS company, just yep. by sheer numbers. And he was talking about how his dad's a developer. He's a young kid, and he's like, "My dad's a developer." And I told him, "Like, if you have any ideas, I can get you users. Just part, like, just let's build something that's cool that fixes that's a small the problem. That's important. Yeah, let's fix a small problem. And yeah. I have the user. So I I would almost go so far to say like rather than finding a a founder that has that is immersed in the community necessarily or has worked with that problem i would say go find a creator that has entrepreneurial or f- like founder traits yep. that is plugged into the community that you care about and that you're trying to market to and say hey yep. let's just build something specifically for them and your followers will be our first users and i, I love like it. I just can't like I I've, I've yet to see where someone does that well. Like there's so many tools that I'm sure are great, but they can't get people to be involved because they don't know how to market it, and they don't know how to connect with the people that are actually within the community. I was talking to another company uh, that that they were like, we're trying to grow with this community, we're trying to grow in this niche and trying to get this new market. We're we're great with the enterprise level. We're trying to get to the small business level. And I would just ask them, I was like, how many creators are you in contact with on affiliate programs? And they're like, we affiliate programs? And I was like, yeah. What do we. The creator economy is like a baffling black hole for a lot of people. Yeah. But it is the most powerful engine you could tap into today. Yeah. Yeah. I just think there's, there's no way that, it, like, it doesn't even have to be an overly, like, you can give a tiny bit of equity and yeah. that's going to drive so much reoccurring revenue into your business if you have a, if you have a good, like, a good tool that actually assists people well. Um, versus like you could if you have a product based thing I've seen too many people do that 
uh, where it's like just a one-off product or it's a B2C product, that's where I think the creators are actually missing out because they're, they're missing, they're, they're, they're selling like, like, I mean, there's one thing, like you see Mr. Beast with Feastables, you see, you see, you know, Logan Paul with Prime, you know, these, how they're doing it. Sure. It's great. It's brilliant. But I don't think that's the move. I think I would wish that more people would connect with people in the software space and say like, Hey, if you're, if you have this problem, my community depends on the audience, right? Like Mr. Beast and Logan Paul have very young audiences. If you look at the demographics, so they're the under 16 audience isn't necessarily buying a subscription to software. True. 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 If you have an audience over 18, that's kind of building stuff. Then I think it, it absolutely is the play. And I think you want to, you should see more. And I like, I think Riverside's done a great job with that. We're on Riverside right now. And I think I, I see them pop up as sponsors on so many podcasts and, um, videos and i'm like that's absolutely the way to do it is yeah. get into the community partner with people and find that find that distribution because a lot of times the content creators are also looking at a way to monetize early on yeah. or looking 100%. at ways to to grow right so it's yeah it truly is a win-win yeah and i think i think it's still underutilized across the board where it's where like I think it's a good need- opportunity for what you guys are doing on your media businesses, helping yeah. <laughs> companies build that roadmap and understand how to pitch to creators and how to monetize it. Like, I think that's, there's a need for that for sure. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. We, I mean, we, uh, my, my business does, it's B2B, but it's really, it's really B2C in the sense that like I work with individuals just because I'm sure you can understand this. It's, I think I told you this. It's so much easier to market people people that than it is to market a business i it's hard for me to make people pass all of us in dan martell's group have had that <laughs> message beaten into our brains it's at like this point. it's it's, it's why like i'm doing podcasts it's why i'm here because yeah it's easier to tell my story than to try and get a hundred thousand people to know what iversoft is but yeah. i can jump out in front of an audience and and share our experience and share what we're doing well, and it gets traction the title of you know the uh, the gamer that that also has a 10 million dollar business is that's an interesting concept. It's an interesting thought that people that attracts people and entertains people. So anyways, yeah. I appreciate your thoughts, man. I, I want to wrap this up and I just want to say thank you so much for being generous with your time and, and uh, your knowledge here. Again, everyone, if you've gotten any value from this whatsoever, if, if you learned something or if you think someone, uh, think about that parent that asked you that question of whether their kid should play video games or think about that developer that uh, is thinking about what next side hustle should I do? Is there a tool I can make? Send this to them. Give them value. Um, my hope is that there's things, there's people that actually take action based on conversations like this and, and based on uh, Graham's story and just, and just how much he's accomplished in his life. So Graham, thank you so much for, for being here and, and, just, and just contributing to my community just in a little way. Grant, thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely amazing. Um, if people want to reach out or follow, yes. uh, check me out at GrahamBarlow.com or Graham Barlow on all the social things. Um, if you're looking for development support, hit us up at iversoft.ca. Uh, this was awesome. I'm yeah. hoping we get a chance to have another another chat and That'd be super bring cool. more of the gaming narrative into the world and how you That'd can be super uh, cool. leverage it. And and just everybody, just so you know, I have all the links in the show notes. So everywhere you want to find Graham, Graham's, a, 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 I love what he's writing on LinkedIn especially, and I, I'm hoping you're going to get on other social media platforms a little more aggressively. It's my hope. Absolutely. But it's maybe coming. We'll have, Maybe we have to talk about that. Maybe that's the thing we have to talk I about. I think something. we do. We absolutely do. That'll be our cool. that'll be our unrecorded conversation. Yeah. We gotta chat about that soon. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks everybody. See ya.